We're going to look this evening at the subject of money. Um, hence the, the lead in there. And uh, not going to solve all your financial problems for you. And please don't text in um, queries. I'm not qualified to give financial advice to anyone. Um, the value of investments can go down as well as up and all of that stuff. So uh, please, uh, no technical questions. But really, uh, we're going to be looking uh, overall at what the Bible has to say about money. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we read this, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? So there's a a view, a realistic view of money. Um, Spike Milligan said, money can't buy you friends, but it can get you a better class of enemy. Money is one of the few things that really it's impossible to ignore. Um, it touches all of our lives. Our lives, obviously, uh, are affected by money. Our Western culture, I guess, is founded on it. We see increasingly, don't we, that moral issues are frequently decided not by whether a particular course of action is right or wrong, but what the various options will cost. And so finance determines things. Uh, just this past week, in fact, there was a report in the press that one of the reasons, apparently, why married couples will be a minority group by next year is that the tax system leaves married couples up to £5,000 a year worse off than single couples. In other words, money, not morality, decides the issue. So perhaps the clearest way for God to get the attention of a nation, our nation, is via the economy. All our morality, if you like, is based on finance. We've become a society that knows the cost of everything and the value of nothing. And in particular, of course, right now, we are all of us involved in this developing financial crisis. A crisis that initially was a credit crunch. Now it's become a recession, moving on, it said, to a depression. And this crisis obviously arises because our economy is based on the rather dubious principle of borrowing in order to spend. And the balloon has burst. And so the proposed remedy, it seems right now, is to somehow release more cash into the system so that banks can be persuaded to lend so that everyone can get credit and go spending again. It's like... Uh, well, it's like we spend as if there's no tomorrow. Economists are even bewailing the fact that at the present time, people have reduced their spending to just necessities. Seems like a crazy thing to complain about. An economy that depends on people buying things that they don't need is surely sick, and that's the economy that is around us. So what does the Bible have to say? What does the Bible have to say about money? And of course, the Bible has a lot to say about money. 
it indicates, it says that, that money, among other things, it says that money is like a kind of barometer. It's an indicator of what we're really like. Henry Ford said, money doesn't change men, it merely unmasks them. If a man is naturally selfish or arrogant or greedy, the money brings that out, that's all. And really he was reflecting then a biblical principle, that money unmasks us, it shows what we're like. Jesus said, this is in Luke 16, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? So how we handle money, Jesus is saying, says a lot about our heart. Trustworthiness in the matter of our personal finances is going to show that we can be trustworthy, we can be trusted with other things that God would give. And the opposite is also sadly true. So if our basic attitude to money is to see what it can do for us, then it's likely that that will also be our attitude to spiritual gifts, for example. What does this do for me? So money unmasks us. So if tonight... I were to give you a surprise gift of £5,000, which I won't, but if I were to, what would your response be? If I came out to you with a cheque made out in your name, £5,000. Hopefully your initial response would be to say thank you. Then after that, In other words, if money unmasks us, if money shows the true state of our heart, then a surprise windfall, and presumably for most of us, 5,000 pounds would be pretty good news. Some of you may think, oh, it's just small change. But for most of us, I guess, that's good. What, what, What would our response be? I guess for some, the response could be a basic one of fear. That is to say... We think, I better put this in the bank quickly. I better look after it. I might need it one day. And some sad people live their lives virtually at poverty level because they're afraid to spend any money in case they might need it one day. I don't know about you, but I've known people who have lived virtually at a poverty level. And then when they've died... It's been staggering to discover how much money they left. But they lived without it because they were afraid of one day. For others, the response could be one of guilt. You've got 5,000 pounds. And you can think, I feel so guilty having all this money. There are so many people in great need. I shouldn't have all this money to spend. And so I must give it away. And certainly generosity is good, but sometimes it's guilt. I I, I mustn't enjoy it. If I enjoyed it, that would be wrong. I must give it away. For others, the response could be one of greed, that our little eyes light up and we think, 5,000 pounds to spend on me. And we think of all the possibilities. And we enjoy thinking of all the possibilities of what 5,000 pounds could do. Uh, Maybe a huge plasma TV, maybe a holiday in the Caribbean. We think, me, 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 what what can I do with it? 
Well, I hope we all agree that none of those responses is a good one. So the question is, what is a godly attitude to money? And that's what we're going to be looking at this evening. And hopefully by the end of the evening, you will have come to some good response to what you would do with a windfall gift of 5,000 pounds. The Bible, as it speaks about money, speaks of the great danger of loving money. Um, In 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, Paul says quite famous words, really, about money, that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. He says, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this. And as you read that passage in 1 Timothy 6, uh, and you see what Paul is saying there, and he says more than that, if you read it, and it does repay careful reading, you get the impression that Paul is writing out of experience that he has witnessed these things happening to people that he has known. He says, many have wandered from the faith. Is he thinking of people as he says that? People maybe who had worked alongside him. And then they got rich, and somehow their zeal for God petered out. He says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. He says, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. (laughs) You you sense pain as he says that. Uh, Clearly, he has seen this. For example, in 2 Timothy 4.10, he refers to his friend Demas, who had traveled with him. One would read in between the lines. We, we can guess that this is a young man recommended by his church to travel with Paul. And then he says, Paul, uh, he says, Demas has left me because he loved this world. He's deserted me. He loved this world. Money plunges people, the love of money, people who want to get rich. In other words, that's their, their goal. That's what they really love. That plunges people into ruin and destruction. So the love of money, clearly to be avoided. He says, man of God, flee from all this. This morning, Dan was setting before us something that we need to flee. Here's something else to flee, the love of money. There's so many things we'll just keep running, actually. But when Paul is giving qualifications for people who should be considered for eldership in 1 Timothy 3, he says, among other things, that a potential elder should not be a lover of money. There it is again. Not someone who loves money. Some friends of mine who lead churches um, have said what they do. I've never followed their advice. I don't know that I could follow their advice. But they've said when they're considering someone for eldership, they look at all the qualities in terms of home life and so on. Then they have a look at the church finances to see what they give. Because what they say is a man who is not giving in a major way into the church is not suitable to be an elder. Well, I have never, never checked up on anyone. You're all safe. I I don't trust myself to know what people are giving. In a way, I do want to know, but no, I don't want to know. And so, uh, but I can see the the point there, that not a lover of money. This is someone who just gives freely. 
or someone who's tight-fisted. And then also writing to Timothy, and, and Paul says quite a lot to Timothy about money. In two, his second letter, 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 and 2, he prophesies there'll be terrible times in the last days, he says. And he lists some of the uh, symptoms of these terrible times, and among them, people will be lovers of money. So when we think of our own day, as we've said, where our values, our moral system is based on what will it cost? Can we afford to allow this treatment on the NHS? What will it cost? Uh, what about marriage? What will it cost? And so on. These are, our morality is based on it. Well, Tim, uh, Paul saw this and wrote about it to Timothy. In the last days, people will be lovers of money. That will be their value system. So the quest for money or ordering our priorities to ensure a maximum income indicates we're worshipping the wrong God. The wrong God has been enthroned. It's been observed that people tend to become like the God they serve, the God they worship. We worship the living God, we'll become like him. We worship money, money's just hard and cold, and we'll become like that. Jesus put it very starkly in Luke 16, 13, you cannot serve both God and money. And we saw a verse in Colossians, it's also in Ephesians, we saw it this morning, Ephesians 5, 5, that greed or covetousness is idolatry. The Ten Commandments forbid covetousness and also forbid idolatry. Greed hits two commandments. Covetousness is idolatry, worshipping the wrong God. So loving money is dangerous. And the, the amount that Paul had, says to Timothy about it is he's entrusting churches to Timothy, is giving Timothy a responsibility to work into churches. And he says again and again, this about the love of money, it's clearly a problem in churches. And so we need to be aware of it. It's an enemy that can get us. As for young people thinking, what career am I going for? If it's money, what, what, what's the salary? If that's our determining question, something's a bit wrong. If we would just move because there's more money in, with that job, it's, you know, who's on the throne? People sometimes joke that while money can't buy you happiness, at least it enables you to be miserable in comfort. In reality, it's not quite as simple as that. There are many wealthy people who are certainly not miserable. They're happy with their lot. It's not that money makes you miserable, but the real issue is what money does to us, what it does to our spirit, what it does to our hearts. And there's a very real possibility of pride, self-satisfaction, self-sufficiency, indifference towards God, indifference towards other people. When you look into the Old Testament, you see when the children of Israel, they've come out of Egypt, they've wandered in the wilderness, and before them is the prospect of this promised land, and God says of it, it uses a, an image, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. What he means is, it's a very prosperous land. It's a good place where food, milk, honey is just kind of flowing. Not literally, of course, but what it's saying. 
what he's saying is, it's a place of prosperity. After all, the suffering of Egypt and the, the, the great poverty in the wilderness, well, just living hand to mouth, when they get into the promised land, there the food will flow. And God warns them solemnly through Moses about what that land flowing with milk and honey could do to their relationship with God. He says, when you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. You see the point? Pride, self-satisfaction. I don't need God anymore. In fact, I created this wealth. No, God is saying, I brought you into it. The danger of wealth. He's bringing them into a prosperous place, but he warns them of the dangers. And of course, we, we know they didn't heed the warning. And when they came into a land of prosperity... They ignore God. You read the prophet Amos, for example, as he uh, weighs into them their prosperity and they turn away from God. And God says, there's a day coming. Jesus warned, that reference incidentally was in Deuteronomy 8, verses 10 to 17, if you're taking notes. Jesus warned that one of the things that can choke God's word so that God's word becomes unfruitful in our lives is the deceitfulness of riches. Deceitfulness, just note that. Riches can look desirable, but there's a deceit there. There's deception. They don't deliver. A comfortably off Christian once told me when I was teaching about faith that what I was teaching didn't apply to him because he had such a good income he didn't need faith. And so he heard what I was saying that didn't apply. Didn't seem to have entered this poor man's brain that for him faith could mean seeing how much he could give away. His, his income, his prosperity had deceived him. And he thought, I don't need faith because I know how much is coming in each month. Think, what a deception. The wealthy can be curiously allergic to the whole subject of giving. Significantly, in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2, we read it was the poor people in Macedonia who gave so miraculously when Paul was taking up an offering for the saints in Judea. It's the poor who gave. And it's often like that in church life. Although I say we don't check up on what people are giving. But I know, particularly when we went, this bit for, went for this building, it was a fact. Because I asked the then treasurer, didn't ask about any individuals. But I said, if you, I said, you know the standing of people in the church. If you drew a line, as it were, midway between the very well-off and the poor and so on, where's most of the money coming from? I hoped you'd say above the line. But he said, no, it's below the line. It's the poor people who are giving most towards the million pounds we needed for this. Wealthy people were distinctly worried. In fact, one of the, uh, one of the wealthy men who was then with us 
strongly urge me not to give generously. Oh, hold on to that money. You might need it one day. So I think, oh, you poor man. Wealthy but poor. The deceitfulness of riches changes your value system. You don't realize what's happening. And it chokes God's word. God's word that is so powerful that God spoke and creation came into being. Riches can choke it. Jesus told a story. He often expressed things in stories, didn't he? He told a story that powerfully illustrates the kind of blindness that can possess people when money comes their way. Get deceived into thinking that affluence means security. You remember the story, it's in Luke 12, about a man who had amassed wealth, stored up. His barns were not sufficient to, uh, to keep all he'd stored up. He built bigger barns. And Jesus said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. A man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions. So there's this man who's accumulated wealth in the story. And when he thinks, right, I've got enough now, God says, you fool. This night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And Jesus then goes on to say, this is how it would be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but isn't rich towards God. So if we're going to have any aim to do with riches, our aim is to be rich towards God. That God is our treasure. That God is all that we need. And that that's our concern, to have treasure in heaven. And we're not going to be deceived by wealth here. The only real wealth is rich, riches towards God. Remember the old story of the uh, two neighbors discussing the recent death of a wealthy neighbor. One says to the other, do you know how much he left? And the other one said everything. And I said, what have we got towards God? That's what matters. So undoubtedly then, there's a very clear message from Scripture that money can represent, doesn't have to, but money can represent a very real danger and a potentially irresistible temptation. It seduces. And it's in the very nature of seduction that you're drawn by it. And people can lose their zeal for God as they acquire more wealth, as they get promoted, as the money worries of maybe when they started out, they're gone now, then their zeal for God can go into decline. It happens. Paul warns about it. Jesus warns about it. God warned the Hebrews about it as they're coming into the promised land. We need to be aware of it. So how then should we handle money? In a way, of course, it's safer not to have any of the stuff if it's so dangerous, but presumably we've all got a little bit. Well, how do we handle it? First of all, we need to, of course, realize that everything in all of creation belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Therefore, everything that we are and have belongs to God. We have committed our lives to him. We belong to him for now and eternity. So our money 
our possessions and our needs. It's all God's. He has responsibility for us and everything that we are and everything that we have belongs to God for him to deal with as he sees fit. That isn't just a pious cliche. That is fact. We belong to God. Everything belongs to him. So the traditional idea, the idea that you find in the Old Testament that 10% belongs to God is wide of the mark. Well, it's 90% wide of the mark because 100% belongs to God, not just the tenth. Everything is his. And so with our money, we are actually handling someone else's possession. We're handling someone else's property. It is God's. And it's property that he is free to add to or to remove. It's his. And so while we are entrusted with it, while it is in our care, we are going to be very careful to use it for the purposes for which God entrusted it to us. Every Sunday, every Sunday morning, Close to the beginning of our meeting, those blue buckets get passed round. Make their way to the back. Obviously, I don't know if you're aware of this, they used to make their way to the front. You may have noticed the change in procedure. I don't know if you've twigged why. The reason for the change, let me let you into a secret, is because so many people come late that when it made its way to the front, as the buckets came to the front, people were coming in the door. We thought, ha-ha, let's do it the other way around. Then we catch the people coming in. Anyway, then the, the worship time goes on, and then you may have noticed that normally during the first song, two people, Gene Hemmingfield and someone else, will make their way down the aisle with those buckets. They're then taken downstairs, put under lock and key safely. Suppose, however... Now, this wouldn't happen. Suppose on the way down, Jean, I don't know if she's ever going to listen to this, I don't think she's here, Jean said to the person with her, today it was Misha, no one knows how much is in here. But I won't tell on you, you don't tell on me. Let's just take something. Obviously, they wouldn't do that. If they did, it would be disgraceful. Misha's looking decidedly guilty, actually. <laughs> it's okay, you're forgiven. <laughs> it would be disgraceful. It would be theft because that has been entrusted to them. And because it's been entrusted to them, they are meant to do with it what they've been asked to do, which is namely to take it downstairs, put it under lock and key. If, so, if, if money is entrusted to you for a purpose, then you are very careful to ensure that that purpose is fulfilled. God has entrusted to us all that we own, and it's for a purpose. His purpose. He says what it's for, and we've got to be careful not to lift any of it for our own benefit. If it would be disgraceful for the people on a Sunday to take some out of those blue containers, how, well, the same principle applies, doesn't it? It's the money that God has entrusted to us. Traditionally, that... Trust is referred to as stewardship. God's property entrusted to us, then we are stewards of his property. A steward is someone who handles someone else's property for that person's purposes, 
and he is accountable to the person who's entrusted it to us, to, to him. And it says in 1 Corinthians 4, 2, it's, it's required for those who have been given a trust that they must prove faithful. All that we have, we're handling for God. So we'll pray about it. We'll ask God about it. We're open to God about it. It's not just our salary into the bank, we spend it mindlessly forgetting God gave that. Now, how does he want us to handle it? God has got to come into this deal. It's a matter of relationship with God because we and all that we have belongs to him. And if we say we're giving our life to him, but we can't give our money to him, then there's a bit of deception operating somewhere. Because if we give our life to him, that involves everything that we have. But with the money that God entrusts to us, there will be some priorities. There are three basic priorities. Two of them are mentioned in 1 Timothy 6 verse 8. In 1 Timothy 6 verse 8 it says, If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Two basic requirements, food and clothing. The word translated clothing actually could have a slightly wider meaning than that. It could be translated covering, food and covering, in which case it means food, clothing, and a roof over our heads. But two priorities, food and covering. And a third priority, surely, is going to be generosity. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is a a chapter that we often look at when we're talking about giving. And obviously, tonight I'm talking about money. I'm not talking about giving. But in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 11... God says you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. So why does God give us money? So that we can be generous. So giving is also a priority. So we have three priorities. Food, covering, and giving. And because they are priorities, they come first. They take precedence as we recognize our stewardship, our responsibility to handle our resources well, obviously we need to make sure that we and our family, if we have dependents, that we and our family are adequately fed, clothed, roof overhead, and that we're giving. As I say, giving is not our subject this evening. I'm kind of only mentioning it in passing, but if it is a top priority then it kind of drives a stake through the heart of this evil monster called the love of money. If giving is a priority, the love of money is dealt a death blow. And we need to make sure that giving is right up there towards the top. When giving loses its top place, when giving becomes what we do in the unlikely event of having anything over at the end of the month, when, in other words, it comes right to the end of our priorities, then we can find ourselves in the kind of position that the prophet Haggai depicted in Haggai chapter 1 and verse 6, when he said, you earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. 
that you're experiencing, where does the money go? You earn wages to put in a purse with holes in. It just kind of goes. Yeah, God said it would be like that. The reason was that they had made their wants take priority over God's purposes. And that was the frustration they then lived with. They never had enough. And they made a big mistake in the matter of priority. So we're responsible to God. Under God, there will be these basic priorities, food, covering, giving. Practically, how we handle our money. Well, surely we will budget. But what about budgeting? What about borrowing? What about saving? What about investing? What about insurance? These are some practical issues. They're very much part of modern life. What does the Bible have to say about those? Does it have anything to say about them? Or are they simply a matter of personal choice? I'm not sure that the Bible ever says, addresses the matter of budgeting. But it is surely a matter of common sense if it's not biblical principle. However, Paul does say in 1 Timothy 5 verse 8... If anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I say, Paul has a lot to say about money when he's writing to Timothy. That's a pretty strong statement. If anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If you're the head of a household, then you are charged with the responsibility before God to provide for those who look to you, those who are your dependents. And if you don't do that, you're worse than an unbeliever. So if you're providing for your dependents, then that involves a wise use of your resources. So it's wise then, surely, to set money aside each month for bills that, say, occur quarterly or annually. It's crazy to be taken by surprise when those quarterly bills come or those annual bills come. You knew they were coming. And it makes sense then, surely, to kind of divide your annual income by your annual expenditure. And so month by month, you know what is already allocated for things that are going to come. So it's just sensible to then say, well, I'll only spend on extra things what is actually money left over because there may be money in my, in, my, in my bank, but actually I need it for that bill next month. Or I need, you know, we, it's sensible to budget. And I would say, incidentally, surely that is something that parents should be training their children to do. I think it's a good practice. Now, I can't find this in the Bible, but I think it's a good practice to ensure that your children have got pocket money but they don't immediately rush out and spend it. Because if, if that is their practice, what kind of adults are they going to be? But if you give them pocket money and teach them to use it wisely, teach them about giving. Don't tell them they must, but teach them about it. I was so blessed when years and years ago, when uh, our son, I think, was about five years old or that, something like that, I was going off on a trip to Poland, which then was behind the Iron Curtain, uh, and I was going to be traveling around visiting uh, some of the churches that were meeting in secret. Uh, and we knew a lot of people who are in real poverty. And just before I went, 
My son got his money box, opened it, tipped out the proceeds, and asked me to give that to someone. I thought, wow. That at that young age, he'd been saving up, but he, he just wanted to give it to people who are poor. It's good to train our children to be generous. It's also good to train our children to save up for things, not to waste money, so that when they go out into the world, they're not totally unprepared And they're not going to walk kind of innocently into serious financial difficulties. If if our children have been trained to have whatever they want when they want it, what kind of adults are they going to be? What kind of debt are they going to get into? So budgeting. Just be sensible. Say, the Bible does say, to anyone who doesn't provide for his relatives and especially his immediate family, he's denied the faith. It's serious. Then provision surely involves being sensible with resources. What about borrowing? God wanted his people, Israel, to be free from debt. So there was this provision, this wonderful provision, for all debts to be cancelled every seven years. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 15. The year for the cancelling of debts. Because debt is a form of slavery. They had been slaves in Egypt. God has redeemed them from slavery. And they're not to get into slavery again. God is a God who forgives us our debts. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6. 12. Our culture, however, teaches us that borrowing is not only good, it's almost essential. Our economy, as we said at the outset, is based on the necessity of borrowing. One of the original credit cards, when credit cards were first launched in this country, one of the original credit cards in the UK had the slogan, Uh, of that that particular card, take the waiting out of wanting. And that's our culture, take the waiting out of wanting. Just go for it, borrow, get it now. Don't wait, don't save. And so, borrowing has become a part of life, and it's tough for students. Getting a student loan, they've got to live on borrowed money, but living beyond their means... Borrowing more than is actually a necessity, more than they can ever repay. We live in a sick culture. So borrowing to enable us to live beyond our means is absolutely obscene. It can't be morally justified, surely. And to default on a loan is even worse. That's theft. Borrowing is not necessarily wrong, of course. If we borrow for whatever reason when actually we can afford to pay, but for whatever reason we we choose not to pay, but to borrow, there's not the same element of bondage, because if need need be, we could pay it off. So this is not a biblical principle, I'm just saying I would feel that if you are going to buy something, you can afford to buy it, but the store is offering interest-free credit, well, I would say, why not have interest-free credit at their expense? You'd got the money for it, put it in the bank, 
well, I was going to say earn some interest. You won't earn any interest, so hmm, probably doesn't make much sense. But once upon a time it did. But because there's no bondage in that. If need be, you can just pay it back. Equally, to have a mortgage where it's not 100% or 110% or whatever, which is absolutely crazy, and that's the problem that people have landed themselves with, but a mortgage that is less than the, uh, considerably less than the value of the house, no matter what happens to the housing market, makes sense. But living beyond our means on borrowed money, living on credit cards is crazy. Yeah, by all means, use a credit card if you pay it off each month. But buying things on credit at iniquitous rates of interest, living beyond our means on someone else's money, can never be morally justified. Let's not absorb the culture of our age. The culture of our age is we've got to get people out into the high streets again. We've got to get people out into the shopping malls. We've got to get people spending no, 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 no. That's, that's not a biblical value at all. What about saving? There's obviously a difference between hoarding and saving. Hoarding is associated with things like selfishness, meanness, fear. Saving is associated with things like self-control, thoughtfulness, Wisdom. In the Old Testament, we see Joseph bringing God's wisdom to Pharaoh, advising him to save during the seven years of plenty in order to have sufficient to cope with seven years of scarcity. That was not just hoarding in a miserly kind of way. No, this was prudence, to, over, to use that overused word again. It's, there's, there's need coming. There's plenty now. Let's prepare for it. And so it makes sense, surely, if we can, to save during our earning years in order to provide for a non-earning retirement. It makes sense. Uh, In doing so, of course, if you do that, and it's wise to do it, you also, surely, or we also, should be ready, if God says so, to give all those savings away. In other words, it's not motivated by fear. It's not miserly, but it's sensible. And then God can say, that's wonderful what you've got in the bank, what you've got in those ices. Would you hand it over, please? And we say, Lord, all I have is yours. The Lord gave, the Lord is taking away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In other words, it's not fear, it's not hoarding, but it's just sensible to save. And as I say, Joseph brought God's wisdom into that situation in Egypt. Without it, it would have been a total, total disaster. Also, surely, it isn't wrong to look for a reasonable return on one's saving. Obviously, we are living at a time now where interest rates are fast approaching zero, and so finding any kind of return on our savings is virtually impossible. But in normal times... It's not wrong to earn interest on our savings. In Luke 19:23, there is the story of the ten miners or ten miners. I'm not sure. You say ten miners. It sounds like ten people who go down in the coal mines. M-I-N-A is a mina, miner. Uh, and 
uh, th- these are small coins. These are uh, coins I- there in Israel. Uh, each uh, the people are given these ten miners, and there's one who just returns them to uh, his his. Uh, master at the end of the allotted time and the master says why didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest and this was a wicked servant who hadn't earned any interest on that potential investment clearly earning interest is not wrong it's wise use of money but in all of that we're always ready to give Always ready to take it and give it away, even if we were saving up for something. And certainly, uh, we've had that experience uh, of saving for something, and just when we've nearly got enough, God says, I'd like you to give that. And you give it. What normally happens, not always, what normally happens is that by some miraculous route, you actually get the very thing you were saving for, Only something better than you could ever have afforded. God is a wonderful God. But we don't do it because we think we'll get something back. We give. In other words, we're living by faith. And talking of living by faith, what about using our money to insure things? Well, for obvious reasons, the Bible never addresses that. There was no insurance industry uh, in the New Testament world, as far as we can know. Uh, And so we can... We, we cannot say definitely anything about it. It seems to be very much a matter of personal choice or more particularly personal faith. What we do know is that we live by faith. By faith from first to last. Our lives are not governed by fear. Our lives are governed by faith. And so that principle of living by faith is then going to affect our decisions about whether to insure or not. Now, obviously, there are some things that we're required to insure. So if you drive a car, you are required to have insurance. Uh, If you have a mortgage, you are required to insure your house and so on. So there are some things where we don't have a choice. There are many other things where we do have a choice, and we have a free choice. God is a God of grace. There are no rules on it. But I've already quoted that from Job about the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. To kind of slightly modify that, the Lord Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. I'm so glad it's covered by insurance. It doesn't quite have the same kind of ring to it. And some people, it does worry me, but they're free to do it. it. It worries me that they do insure just about everything against every conceivable and some inconceivable possi- uh, possibilities. And you think, think of all the money that's going out on that. Why? But say it's a matter of personal faith. Other things that the Bible says about money, the Bible speaks obviously of the danger of the love of money. The Bible speaks about the stewardship of money, how to handle money. And the Bible has a lot to say about contentment and faith. Because the strange thing about money is that you never seem to have enough of it. But the Bible speaks about contentment. Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, he said, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content 
in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. It's important to see that last statement, I can do everything through him who gives me strength, is in that context. He's not saying I can do everything. Uh, No, he's talking about I can cope with plenty, I can cope cope with poverty. I can cope with being well-fed, being hungry. Because he's learned contentment. The word content, the English word content, is linked with the word contain. Contents are what something contains, obviously. And to be content is actually to be self-contained. In other words... Paul is speaking here about a kind of detachment from his circumstances. A detachment that arises from an attachment. He's detached from his circumstances because of his attachment to God. And because of his attachment to God, he's kind of self-contained. Because his treasure is in him. His His happiness, his sense of well-being isn't derived from what's happening around him. His sense of well-being arises from what's in him. So his commitment to God, his relationship with God nourishes him and he's so nourished by his relationship with God and so satisfied with, by his relationship with God that he's not distracted by prosperity or embittered by poverty. He doesn't go on a self-pity trip because of what he hasn't got because he's got God. He's got treasure. He's enjoying God. He's hungry, but he's enjoying God. And then when he's got plenty, he's not seduced by it because he's enjoying God. He says, I've learned it, that I've learned to be content. It's it's a process, but it's worth learning. So we're not moved either way by what is happening. Our poverty or our prosperity are kind of incidental, because we're just living in the middle of it with God, attached, related with him, loving him, satisfied deeply. By who God is. Paul says, I've learned it. So we don't get maturity overnight, but we can make it our aim. So I want to learn that. I want want to be able to adjust to whatever's happening. To not be... when when, when When there's a time of prosperity, I don't want to need that. I want to be able to cope with it. And when there's poverty and I'm hungry, and I don't, it's not that I don't know where the next meal's coming from. There isn't a next meal. I still want to just be enjoying God. I don't want to get all sorry for myself. I start dropping broad hints to people. No, I've just got to go through with God. It's worth learning. Real contentment then is found in God and it's found in relationship with God. And relationship with God has a kind of stabilizing effect on our spirit a stabilizing effect on our mind, whatever's happening around us. 1 Corinthians 7.31, there Paul speaks about using the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. Because it's all too easy to become engrossed, where they take over. No, use them, enjoy them, but don't, don't need them. 
Don't depend on them. That kind of maturity means that you can enjoy the good times. Without guilt, you enjoy what God gives. You praise him for what he gives. You you enjoy the things with which God is blessing you, but they don't win our affection. We don't mind when we haven't got them. So when things take a turn for the worse, we continue to enjoy God, and we continue to trust him. And we can say, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Contentment, of course, comes out of faith. And our faith is this. We believe that we've got a heavenly Father. Isn't that basic? Isn't that childish? Isn't it wonderful? We've got a heavenly Father. We've got a heavenly Father who loves us. A heavenly Father who has committed himself to taking responsibility for our eternity. He's committed to it. We're his. So we've handed our lives over to him, and he says, I'll take care of your life for eternity. Nothing is going to separate you from my love. That's what we believe. We don't just believe it in the good times, you see. We believe it. That's the rock on which our lives are built. We've got a heavenly Father. There really is no safer place to be than to belong to God and to be in the center of his love. And that's where we are. And Jesus said about our heavenly Father, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock, the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? That's our Father. So even in times of scarcity, maybe redundancy, we don't have any savings, and there's a very real fear what's going to happen next. In those circumstances, and those circumstances can come, can hit Suddenly, the the firm we're working for, we thought it was secure, and suddenly we discover we've lost our job. It happens, as we know, instantly, without any warning. You go to work, and suddenly you find there's a notice on the door. Ah, it's over. It happens. Then what? We've got a heavenly father. He always knew this was going to happen, and he's taken responsibility for us. So we trust him. He's a good father. The psalmist said, Psalm 37, verse 25, I was young and now am old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. That's his experience. Lack of money doesn't mean lack of food. I say, wait a minute, what did you just say? I'll say it again. Lack of money doesn't mean lack of food. Remember the story of Elijah. God sent ravens 
morning and evening. The ravens fly in with food. Remember the children of Israel going through the wilderness. Food just appears on the ground. They don't have to buy it. You've got 5,000 hungry people out there listening to Jesus. They had, well, they may have had money, but there weren't any shops. So if they had money, it wasn't much use to them, and they had no food. God multiplied, Jesus multiplies food for them. Lack of money doesn't mean lack of food. You might think, yeah, well, that was all right in Bible times. Things like that don't happen now. Let me tell you, things like that do happen now. I was privileged to have a poverty-stricken childhood. I was privileged to grow up in a home where there was no income. I was privileged to be in a one-parent family with a father who had deserted us, but a heavenly father who never deserted us. I was privileged to grow up in a situation where I had a mother who prayed and things just came. And no one but no one knew about our circumstances and we never told people, but God provided. Then when I left home, I'd gone to university, then God spoke with me after going to university that I should go to Bible college. Couldn't get a grant because I'd had one. And so I go to college because God has told me to go. And then the college was in the west end of London, London West One, the, the prime area in London. I had to get accommodation in London West One. I had a bed sitter there in, in the heart of London, the most expensive part of the city. I've got rent to pay. I've got no food, got no money. Oh, and college fees. And daily things just happened. I didn't tell anyone. And I said to my family, you mustn't give to me. You're the only ones who know about this. You mustn't give because otherwise I'm just sponging off you. And I lived. And God provided. You don't need money when you've got a heavenly father. We've learned to be content. So, yes, possessions come, but they can go. Treasures may come, treasures may go in a moment. But God's eternally ours. We sang it with great enthusiasm. Did you believe it? We don't need a regular income if that becomes impossible. If, we, if this nation heads into a depression, if companies start offloading staff, if we lose our job, what then? Family, children. Yeah, but we've got a heavenly father. And he's wonderfully good. And we trust him. Faith in God isn't optional. It's the basis of our relationship with him. We're believing him for eternity. We're believing him for salvation. We might as well believe him for life. Worrying about money can seem reasonable. It can seem perfectly understandable until you put it in the light of who God is. And when you put worrying about money into the light of what God has promised to do, then we see what that worry is for what it is. Sin. It's just refusing to believe God. It's insulting God. Jesus said, do not worry. Do not worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? 
He said, pagans run after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Isn't that wonderful? Pagans, people who haven't got God, they'll run, they'll, they'll worry, they'll say, what are we going to eat? What? Not you. Not you. Your heavenly Father knows. And he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. That's our God. Is he our Father or not? If he is, we walk with him. With contentment, satisfied with him, and with faith, whatever happens. One of the consequences of believing God will be that even in times of financial uncertainty, we can continue to be generous. I drew attention to that on Friday night at the family night. I'm so thrilled that we've begun this year in a time of economic uncertainty. And yes, when the finances of the church are not too healthy, to put it mildly, giving away over £6,000 to the poor in Zimbabwe. Wonderful. Even in times of need, we can continue to be generous. It was the poor in Macedonia that gave beyond their ability, Paul says. Fear says, hold on to what you've got. Hold on to what we've got because we don't know what tomorrow might bring. We don't know what tomorrow might hold, so we've got to keep our resources. Faith says, let's give because we know who holds tomorrow. We're trusting God. And so we can be generous. If you were at that United Prayer meeting back at the start of January, there was a prophecy from someone there that this was going to be a year when churches were going to be generous giving away. I thought, wonderful. I hope that's true. In a time of need, churches just generous. So faith, contentment, generosity will mark us out as a people who have got something to say in the present situation. People have got a heavenly father and they are not influenced by their circumstances. They're nourished and satisfied with what's inside We've got a father who cares. So, back to my original question. If I gave you 5,000 pounds, what would you do? Hopefully, as I say, first of all, you'd thank me. It's not essential. You don't have to, but I imagine you would. And hopefully, then, your next priority would be to pray. Now, maybe, of course, unbeknown to me, you have been fervently asking your Heavenly Father for just that sum of money, in which case then you know what to do with it because it's a wonderful answer to your prayer. But if it is right out of the blue and you didn't know what it was about, you, didn't, you weren't expecting it, then as you pray about it, maybe your first question as you come before God will be, can this be used to massively increase the amount I give away this year? I know my target figure of what I want to give away. Can I just add 5,000 to that? So we ask God, can I give this away? It's not guilt saying I must give it away. Is that what it's for? Am I allowed to give that much away? There are no rules but we will bring God into it because he's the source of our contentment and he is our treasure and what we have 
is a stewardship. God has called us to relationship with him, and in relationship with him, in relationship with a wonderful God, we may excitedly give it away. Equally, or less excitedly, we may use it for something else with which our Heavenly Father wants to bless us, in which case we thank him for it. In either case, we recognize we belong to God, and so does everything we have. And we also say that he is our most lasting and satisfying treasure. So 5,000 pounds, well, I'm actually more excited about my relationship with God. That's where our heart is, and that's what we live for. Well, I'm at your mercy. Okay. Um, first question. Someone said, you said that borrowing beyond our means and defaulting on loans is wrong. Um, yet JDAC, uh, the Jubilee Debt Advice Center that we run, um, talks to creditors on behalf of debtors for token payments that in reality will never pay off the debt. Hmm. Is, that, is that wrong then? Hmm. So, Jay, so could you repeat that? Jay, Jay that will speak to, to, hmm. the, to the creditors hmm. and say, can the person who's in debt pay off yeah. at a rate of maybe a pound a month? Hmm. Sure. In reality, that debt will never be paid hmm. off at that rate. Well, true. And obviously, JDAC is picking up the wreckage of a culture that encourages borrowing, and people do get into massive debts. Um, what JDAC is aiming to do is to help people through that, but it's a bit pointless when people come with massive debts to, to then tell them that this is sinful. <laughs> um, they know their problem. Um, the, the debt is a fact, so we're not, we're not in any way condoning it. We're trying to help people out of it. And if they can never pay it off, well, at least you know, we can help them to pay off some. We're not condoning anything. Okay. Um, next one. Someone's um, just coming back on, on when you were saying about um, if we're poor... Um, do we tell other people? And they've said, sure, do we, should we suffer, suffer poverty in secret? Surely not telling others is not being, they've said, one-hearted with the church. I don't mean sharing it from the microphone, but with those that we trust, mm. isn't it? Just about being open with people. Yeah. I think that is a matter of personal choice and personal faith. I, what I would say is that we don't want to burden other people with our needs. The Bible does tell us to bear one another's burdens. Um, and it's, <laughs> I think there's a difference between people bearing my burden and me burdening them with it. Uh, if people want to share with me, that's one thing. If I want to dump my problems on others because I'm looking to them to help me out, I think, well, yeah, it's better to pray. Uh, so we come before God, but then within the church, equally, we are eager to give to one another. And so we may become aware or sense that someone is in need. Yeah, we'll give. But I think um, 
you know, if in your core group you announce you've got a massive bill that's got to be paid this week and you can't afford it, it kind of does tighten the screws on people in the group to actually do something about it, and I don't think that's the right thing to do. That's my feeling. Um, I think because I don't like ever putting pressure on people, so I will not put pressure on people with my needs. Someone's saying that their contract, I guess, for, for the house that they have, um, that they're renting, required that they pay their rent for the next year in mm. advance, which they did. After doing so, and after the energy bills have gone out, um, there's only their overdraft left, which they're using for food, and they have no income. Uh, they've said, do I tithe? I'll, I'll say, do I, do I give then? Um, what, uh, do I give away money that's not mine? it's an overdraft. <laughs> oh dear. Um, if you are borrowing money, if you're living on an overdraft, do you stop giving? I think, again, no rules. Personal walk with God is crucial. One can give some guidance. And I, I have... For example, I have been told of people who say they don't give because you know, they've got a student loan and they feel it's not right to give borrowed money. Then you discover some of the other things they do with that borrowed money, like you know, spending it fr frivolously on alcohol or whatever, uh, partying, going here. You think, oh, wait a minute. Why is it right to do that and not right to give? And so I think often that can be a cover for other things, or sometimes. If you feel uh, you know, of necessity you're living on an overdraft, on necessity you're living on borrowed money, I would say then the wise thing is to cut everything back to the very minimum. If you feel before God, that you should give out of it, then that's between you and God. But I think wisdom is to borrow as little as possible. However, when we are in need, sometimes the appropriate thing is to give our way out of that problem. You know, the people that Haggai spoke to didn't have much because they weren't giving. And they had this purse with holes in because they weren't honoring God. And sometimes, I'm not saying always, but sometimes the way out of our predicament is actually to start living by faith. I just throw that one in, but I would say if we're, if we're borrowing, it is not wise to borrow more than we absolutely have to. That's my opinion. It is not scripture. Therefore, you can rubbish it. <laughs> On the basis of biblical priorities, are cars a luxury? They've said it's a slightly loaded question because they're looking for a reason to live in a camper van. <laughs> what was that second bit? I, sorry, I was just thinking. So they've said it's a slightly loaded question because I'm looking for a reason to live in a camper van. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just take the first part. <laughs> are cars a luxury? A few other people have said about luxuries as well. Hang on. Hmm. Um, someone has I'm getting a lot of um, 
text in as, as you're speaking, mm. which is, um, it says, how do, someone else says, how does, the, how does it all sit with Christians who spend money on nice cars and large houses? Does that demonstrate wrong priorities? Someone else has said, is it wrong to ever spend money on luxuries if our money belongs to God and not us? So I'll, I'll slightly stand back now, though I will answer it, but I'll slightly stand back from it to just bring a very important principle here um, from the book of Romans, chapter 14, where it says, it's talking about another issue, but I'll show, hope to show you the relevance. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. That is talking about Jewish food laws, some who had scruples uh, and, and couldn't eat meat that was maybe suspect or whatever, was it unclean, and so they'd just eat vegetables and so on. One man's faith allows him to do one thing. Another man's faith allows him to do some, something else. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? So no way would I want what I've said tonight about priorities to then cause us to start judging people. Oh, how can they live in that large house? How can they have that car? You don't know how God has blessed them. You don't know. Now, I know, for example, of one servant of God who was traveling a lot, and someone said, look, when you're traveling, I'm going to pay your hotel accommodation. And the hotel accommodation that was paid for for him was in five-star hotels. And he felt, I can't accept that because of what other Christians would say. And so he had to pay for himself to stay in less luxurious accommodation when he for free he could have had the better. I think it is so sad that Christians are so ready to pounce on people and say, oh, look, five-star hotels. And actually, the guy, it was, he wasn't even paying for it. It was free. We don't know that person with the nice car, whether it was given to them. We don't know. So we, we don't pass judgment on one another. To his own master, he stands or falls. Is it a luxury to have a car? For some, yes. For others, no, is the simple answer. Some need a car because of their lifestyle, because of what they're doing. And traveling by public transport just would not work. For other people, it's a luxury. And if God blesses someone with a luxury, praise God. We're not sitting in judgment on people. And as for someone wants to live in a camper van, I would say there are good counselors around who can help such... <laughs> Such people, it's not my job to counsel or give psychiatric help. That's fine. You can, you can tell them to Ben later on. Yeah. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> um, <laughs> need another question. Um, someone, said, someone said, if God always provides food, the psalmist says, do Christians die of starvation in other countries where people are dying. Mm. Hmm. I was mindful of that in preparing this. The scripture says that about um, 
you know, the, the psalm says, I've been young and now I'm old, and he says, I've never seen the righteous begging and so on, and I'm aware also that at the start of the year we were giving money, for example, to the poor in Zimbabwe. Um, but then again, that is God's provision for them. But I'm aware, obviously, that there can be poverty. Paul says he knows how to cope when there is no food. He had lived through such times. And we don't know what life will throw at us. And we, our confidence is, I'm in the care of my Heavenly Father. I believe Him. If He chooses, me to, chooses for me to walk that difficult, painful path of total poverty that could lead to death, I walk through that with God. And there are mysteries in life. Why, why are some people healed? Why do some people die of their sickness? You know, there, there are so many mysteries. We still hold on to the fact, the basic fact, that we have a Heavenly Father who cares for us and who will care for us through those circumstances. So, you know, I, I spoke about how God taught me to trust Him. Yes, there were days when I didn't have anything to eat. I mean, I'd be dishonest if I didn't say that. There were times when I was hungry. But overall... My Heavenly Father cared so, uh, and provided. Um, we are responsible also to provide for one another. And th that is why we gave that money at the start of the year. We are responsible to do that. If God's people close their hearts and don't give, then other people will suffer. There are many reasons, many explanations. All I'm saying is we don't live our lives motivated by fear. We live our lives motivated by faith. Um, probably the last one, unless I get any others through. Um, should parents, it's a bit of a should, but should parents use their savings to put their children through university, or is it better to save it for retirement and encourage the children to be independent or dependent on God? I never like, I think this has become mm. clear maybe through the topic evenings we've had, I never like answering questions that have this word should we or must we or ought we to. Um, there are no rules. We, I mean, there are basic rules. We don't steal or whatever. You know, but in terms of how we handle our money, we walk with God. So should parents use their savings to put their children through university? They may. They are free to. Equally, they are free to say to their children, you're own, on your own now. Um, it, we can't override anyone's conscience and we can't override anyone's walk with God. We can have our preferences. Uh, my preferences are of no interest to you. So <laughs> I just say that is an issue that the individual has to seek God for. probably covers all the, all the questions I think the others you've covered already hmm. so um, that's it okay well I'm glad that no one actually asked any detailed financial advice though <laughs> some of them maybe got a bit near to that hopefully that's of some help to you I think we don't know what this year and the next year we don't know what it's going to hold um, and doubtless we will many of us face challenges in the whole area of handling money. And we will face questions of, do we stop giving because of this or that? Or you know, issues will come. 
the danger also of then looking critically at what other people are doing, that will also come. And let's just be very careful to walk with God, not becoming embittered by what we haven't got and what others have got, but enjoying our relationship with God.